Yo, what's good? This is Jay Khadija Abdurrahman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. This is season three, episode three, y'all. Um, January 28th, 2021. This is 3.44 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm here with the homie Elon Mandel. What's up, Elon? You know, I haven't thought about it before, but every time you say the time, I think about the fact that my boss might be listening to this podcast. They might be like, wasn't he supposed to be doing something at 3.45? <laughs> Um, well, I don't think you listen to the podcast. I'm really excited. First of all, before I even introduce this person, I was just telling them before we started recording that I've been, I feel like we're so close to each other. You know how like now white people will be like cousins, you know, we find out like somewhere down the line. So I feel like so close to this person. I'm always in their DMs on Twitter. And then I went to invite them. I'm like, fuck, I don't know their name. (laughs) Um, But this is Alejandro. Actually, Alejandro, I'm not going to mess up your last name. Could you please say your last name for me? Yeah, my name is Alejandro Villalpando. Uh, people call me Alex, too. So whatever folks feel comfortable usually with. Thank you. I appreciate that because my last name is Abdurrahman and people always mess it up. And I'll just read your traditional bio and we'll give you a chance to kind of explain a little bit more about who you are. Um, but he received his PhD from the Department of Ethnic Studies from the University of California, Riverside. He is a born and raised South Central Los Angeles, Los Angeles and a son of a Guatemalan immigrant mother and a Mexican immigrant father. Dr. Villapando is an assistant professor in the Department of Pan-African Studies and Latin American Studies program at Cal State LA. His work can be understood generally as lying within the intersection of Black, ethnic, and Central American studies. Damn, thank you for joining the show. And would you like to say a little bit about yourself just in general? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things about introducing myself like that, I'll share this little story. You know, we did this... um, you know, they do these new hire things and uh, there was a caucus. Uh, there's the Chicanx, Latinx caucus of like faculty at my campus, right? And I knew a lot of these folks before because I've been a long time uh, lecturer at Cal State LA. You know, I'm, I'm an alumni from there as well. I have a master's degree in Latin American studies, which is the place that I teach, right? And so, which is mind blowing because some of the folks that were my teachers um, and on my committees are now my colleagues, right? And coming to me asking questions, which is wild, right? Um, but the, the other part is that when I was in this thing um they asked us to do a bio and i always feel real uncomfortable about speaking about myself even in typing in the third person and so i was like i am right like i just made i statements and i was like i am the father of x right i am the partner i am a partner i am a son of south central i'm a son of these immigrant folks right but i was the last one that they introduced because of my last name right alphabetical order and there was like five or six folks in front of me all of their bios were like, has been published in XYZ, right? Like everything was like the academic <laughs> stuff. I was like, yikes. I am so, I, I, you know, I feel like, uh, what is that? That 2 chain song, right? I'm different, right? You know, I was just like, oh man, this is, uh, this is real. Uh, this is new for me. But really, you know, the South Central part is really essential to who I am. Um, the, the migration dispossession story is really essential to who I am and what I do, how I think, um, and really my pedagogical style, right? The South Central part, and it's so dope because this term, I just met my students for this term and I got maybe a dozen from South Central and uh, Casa de LA is a, is a teaching institution, right? It is like for, you know, if any university um, space, not the institution itself, but university space can be considered kind of like the people's university. It is in that sense. Um, and, and really what it means is that people from my communities go there. Right. Like it's not um, the cream of the crop, Mm -hmm. like students necessarily. It's a it's a predominantly first generation working class uh, student of color uh, university. And while we do have some white students, it's it's generally a small population. And a lot of those white students are working class first gen themselves. So it's a really interesting place. And I'm really um, grateful to be able to serve that particular population. Right. The relationship with academia is a little more complex, which is another reason why I don't really include a lot of those things. I am proud of where I was trained uh, with the PhD, right? But again, I think I, I think it was a very dialogical, dialogical relationship in terms of what I brought to the program and what the program introduced me to, right? It gave me shape for, it, it shaped a lot of my experiences within a context that I kind of felt already, but I didn't know how to articulate necessarily growing up in South Central, right? Um, so that's a little bit more about me, you know, but yeah, I am a parent also, you know, so uh, shout out to the parents, shout out to you, Khadija, and um, yes. the babies. And, you know, I, my, my kid is outside, hopefully doesn't come in here with a nosebleed or something so <laughs> appreciate y'all <laughs> and nice to meet you Elon too 
Um, no, I really appreciate what you was explaining about your bio. Cause I was just talking to my friend, um, uh, who is, uh, getting their PhD in aroma oral history. And we were talking about classification. And so there's this, like, there's all types of biases that are encoded into data set, but the very act of classification overemphasizes this kind of like accomplishment, um, or like, you know, where, where did you attend or like what we think of as demographic information, right? Whereas our histories are very relational, like, you know, for me, my last name is Abdurrahman, um, but that's because my father got kicked out of school and he had to use his Muslim name. If he was going to use his Oromo name, it, my last name would have been Ababugu, which means uh, my father is Bugu. Like, the uh, the connection in your identification is about lineage and about, like, interdependency. And so I think that's, like, also what's really dope about going to like how you said, like to the degree it can be a people's university, um, you know, being among people who are working class or like when it's not the dominant like white hegemony, because that brings in other forms of knowledge production that kind of resituate some of these ideas. Right. Yeah, um, absolutely. But I, so scrolling to the whole reason that I invited you onto the podcast and I was, I was trying to look for the original tweet, but you tweet as much as I do. And I was like, fuck it, I can't find it. But I just remember it hit me when I saw you tweeting something along the lines of, um, you know, there's a whole, a whole bunch of people that made their career based on the social inequity encountered or confronted by Black and Latinx people in South Central and the Bay, and they're nowhere to be found as all this divestment is happening from California. And for me, you know, I kind of like superimposed my world onto that. So I was thinking about, one, all the tech companies that are leaving California, Um and, you know, in our field, we see so many people who like the big thing is to come up critiquing the tech, not just critiquing the tech companies, but making like books and becoming famous, talking about social inequity and then going to work for those very same companies. Like I just seen um, the author of Uberland is going to go work at Uber. And that's such a, like a canonical example. <laughs> um, and it just... I don't know. I was like really curious to hear your reflections on this, um, not just because it's about like selling out and opportunism, but also from a social justice angle. I think it represents like um, or it presents like interesting challenges. Because on one level, if you're trying to get rid of gentrification, it might feel like, oh, yeah, the gentrifiers are leaving. But it also has like echoes of colonization that they're leaving after they sucked and extracted all of the natural resources and left a disaster. And the reason they're relocating is they're claiming bad governance in California because it's too much taxes and regulation. And so I was wondering if you could share a little bit <laughs> about what you're seeing and also what yeah. you think, like on a social justice level about how to like frame some of this stuff up. Yeah, no, I mean, I think uh, one thing, as you just shared that, that thing about the Uberland and, and Uber, like going to work, it just reminds me of like when uh, people in the mob become informants, right? Like, or people in uh, who done all kinds of, uh, you know, quote unquote, criminal activity, then get become informants or like turn state, right? Like they become operatives for the state, right? Like I, I think there was a story about the the leader of the Proud Boys being a, yeah, all, all all those things, right? Like that they do that work, right? I mean, for me, just kind of seeing the exploitative nature and kind of understanding on a, again as on a felt, you know, on a felt situation. I'll start off with a story, right? Because that's what we do, we kick stories, right? Um, there, when I was in when I was in high school. Like, I was a fairly high-achieving kid, right, just because school was easy to me and not to, like, you know, I'm not trying to flex or anything, but just a lot of that shit was real easy for me. I was a, I was good at math and all this other stuff, but also I was, like, a little, you know, a little hood kid. So, you know, I was doing petty little things, you know, kicking it um, in the community ditch and doing all kinds of, you know, regular stuff that people get criminalized or pushed out for. But because I was high-achieving, it was hard for them to push me out, right? Like, so it was a, it was a kind of a... It was a conundrum that they were in. As such, I, I got opportunities that other people didn't, right? And so one of the opportunities I had, which is so funny, right? One of the high school uh, teachers that I had was, uh, I guess their dad worked for the DA office out here in LA. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the, she ended up being the our AP English teacher, right? So all these little black and brown kids, uh, and this is like right after the OJ case. They were very tied to the OJ case. She would always ask us, like, what our opinions were on the OJ case. You know, I'm 16 years old, 17 years old. I don't give a fuck about OJ. You know, I don't really care about none of that stuff. I mean, we do. And it was a big thing in the community out here in L.A., right? Uh, the celebration, right? Like, I laugh at the Chris Rock joke, right? But 
one of the things that she did, she 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 was a tutor, like for Princeton Review for the SAT, and she wanted to give that opportunity to us. So, you know, she she did this Princeton Review class at seven in the morning, and uh, we would go and take this SAT prep class, and it was cool. Um, the other thing that she did is she got um, you know college recruiters to come out here, and I remember the UC San Diego one where I ended up going as an undergrad. Uh, come and you know he was a, a very white. Uh, Latino male, right? Like from presumably from around these communities, right? And he was working in recruitment. Now I know that that's like a, you know, that's just kind of a working class gig, right? Maybe he went to college and then got this job to be a rep. But one of the things that struck me even as an 11th grader was like the way that he was presenting the college experience was like, and guess what, y'all? There's a food court. And you could buy Wendy's and I think there's a Rubio's there and you could use your meal plan points to buy any food that you want on campus. And it's just so dope. And that became the crux of his presentation. And I remember sitting there and be like, my man, did you just come over here talking? Like, we got a Carl's Jr. on the corner right here. You know, I remember just kind of back talking to him and being like, what are you doing? Like, why aren't you talking? I was like, I don't, at that point, I didn't even know that I was going to go to college for sure, right? I was still trying to figure all that stuff out. That was all pretty new to me, right? Because I was high achieving, I started getting funneled into these different, like, uh, locations and opportunities. Um, but I, I just remember thinking, like, yo, you sound like you're from around these areas. Why are you presenting stupid shit like that? Why aren't you trying to get us to get excited about the academics there? I was like, isn't there like a math program? Like, I was reading this brochure that you just put in front of us that this is one of the top engineering schools in the nation. I was like, why are you talking about Rubio's and Wendy's? Like, we don't got a Carl's <laughs> Jr. in the corner. And and so I, I share that story because it feels like that's what happens when people leave, right? Or, like, they have to find their way, like, in the world, right? Um, but once, I, once I've, like, been in these kind of spaces now as an academic, right? Like, I presented at a lot of major conferences. I got friends and, you know, I got friends in low and high places, right? Like, uh, and so... Some of the stuff that I see, right, is really perturbing, especially because part of the work that I do, you know, the, the really important work that I do on, in the community is to support these families who lose loved ones uh, to police terrorism, state-sanctioned violence, right, and to see and be around with these folks and kind of support them on their demands of justice, um, and then see how people write about these demands, right, and write about kind of what the community is doing or, you know, build careers off of these things, which, you know, it's a complex and vexed kind of condition or situation, but people taking off and, like, I don't understand how anyone could write about, let's say, LA, the LAPD violence, right? And I'm not talking about tech specifically, right? But nonetheless, right, like, if you don't live out here, right? Like, I mean, I do understand on the fundamental, like, fundamental level, I know how people can write and research, right? But I don't understand, like, how it's taken serious, right? I don't understand how you can talk about certain things that you didn't live that are so kind of felt, right? Like, that are so, like, you can't make the interpretations that someone who lives in these realities grew up in the crosshairs of these things um, or in certain proximity um, that others do, um, that, that, uh, that, that, uh, you can't write about that in the same way that those folks can. And so being a professor or a, a quote unquote researcher, or even an expert, right? Like in certain things, I'm like, I made a conscious decision for myself. Um, once I decided that, well, not once I decided, once I was able to stack enough money through different opportunities that I got only because of grad school, because I'm a first-time home buyer in my community, right? Once I decided that I, that that situation, right, was available to me um, because one of my nephews actually bought a house in Compton, right, who also grew up out here in our communities, um, he was like, "You should do it, dog. Like, you should do it. You, there's no reason you can't do it. Like, you you're a working professional, et cetera, et cetera." But when that time came to buy a house, I was like, firmly. I'm going to buy a house in my community. Like, I'm not going to look anywhere else. I'm not. And, and you know, this may not make sense to y'all, but I'm sure that y'all's ge geography over there is similar or, or maybe different, right? Like, L.A. is so sprawling. Um, so I could move maybe 15, 20 minutes away, and it's a whole nother world, right? Um, and it's still relatively close to where I'm from, but the schools are different, right? Um the kind of like culture in these areas is different, but also the cost of living is so much more expensive. Um, so I could have been house broke and got a townhouse in Torrance, for example, um, or I could have got the house that I have now, like smack dab in the community that I grew up in. Um, and it was never a question for me. 
Right. So I stayed here. And I think that what, what that did for me is, is and what it's actively doing for me is just unraveling and uncovering so much of why it's important for me, Alejandro Villalpando, the PhD, the community member and all these things to still stay in these communities. Right. To not vacate and abandon shit when I'm making my career off of it. Right. And not just that I'm staying here and like that's some sort of like, uh, I don't know heroic thing is that I'm out here on these streets trying to organize against police terror. Right. And then I'm visible in that way. Um, and that stuff continues to be really important. And so when you see these other kind of, you know, industries just kind of usurp, exploit and extract, I'm just like, I can't ever do that. <laughs> I don't know. And maybe I do, you know, maybe people have, you know, certain feelings about what I am and wh what I do and how I, how I've done things, but I don't think that <laughs> I haven't run across that yet, you know, and I have faith that I won't because um, I think about these things that you brought up a lot, right? Like the contradictions and the tensions, and I try to be as ethical as possible. And I just don't see or have experienced that to be a culture, right? When you succeed or get to certain levels of success, that those considerations actually, while we may like pontificate on them in like seminars and things, I don't really think people sit with those things enough. <laughs> it's not enough for me, um, at least. So I, I don't know if that answers the question or approximates something or opens a door to something else, but those are some things that, uh, you know, you made me think of with this, with this thing. Now nah, that's real. When you were talking about the college recruiter coming, I was thinking about my last year yeah. of high school, which actually was only six weeks long um, because I had a really bizarre <laughs> situation in that I went to this like kind of bougie type of reform school for um, went till I was 12 till I was 17. And so then I refused to go back and they wanted to hire this. There are these people that you can hire to kidnap your kids and bring them back to these um, institutions. But luckily, I was able to evade that. And there was only one school in the whole city that would take me Westside High School. One of the reasons I thought about it is uh, Tupac used to go there because I guess he was in Harlem before he went to California. Um, but the thing is, when I went wanted to apply to college, they were like, be realistic. And it, was, it had nothing to do with me, but that was just kind of the assumption about the population there. And we had the cops come into our homeroom and tell us about like the most common APB was like black male, five, six, five, eight with a white tee telling us not to dress like that. Um, and I remember I only went there for six weeks, but so much happened. Like one of the kids in my homeroom, um, they had robbed a Chinese delivery man in front of the building. And then um, even though he was a minor, they printed his full name inside of the newspaper. And that was like a huge discussion around like privacy and consent and like who gets to be seen as a child um, right when they're at the cusp of, you know, legal adulthood and stuff like that. And the thing is that I learned so much from that experience going to a high school where the majority the, the age cutoff was from 17 to 21. So it was a lot of older students. I was one of the few kids, um, few students that didn't have kids at that time. And um, I learned so much from it. But at the same time, when I think about my peer group and people navigating the welfare system, shelters, um, incarceration, things like that, we also don't have the strategies. And I know, you know, when I originally met you through the Abolition Open School, this is a lot about what I've been thinking about tech is that I see a lot of the grassroots, you know, people are authentic. I see people who are really down. And, you know, on the, on the, on the flip side, you know, there's trademark BLM movements that have merchandise and, you know, that's a whole nother side. But I do feel like I know a group of people, including you, who really legitimately are about this life and are committed and are not just see seeking to build their brand. But on the flip side, you know, I feel like we need help with strategy. Like when I think about research, I think that it's important to be humble, but I also see the grassroots constantly and I don't know how much this is local too, but in New York, a lot of times I feel like with these protests, it's just like resurrecting models of the past. Like people, you know, they have a rally, they go outside and march because that's what you were told to do. Um, and it just feels all very orchestrated. Like you're going through these barricades and a lot of times it doesn't have that sense of urgency. And so when I saw you put that thread on Twitter, I was just really thinking about like, what is the right thing to do in this moment as tech companies are divesting from California and like, what does that mean relative to like the social justice movement that's grassroots? What does this mean for tech researchers? What does this mean for like abolitionists and organizers? And just, um, I guess the last layer of that for me is just thinking about how even Silicon Valley prior to being named after Silicon um, was like an agricultural region and like Santa Clara Valley. And like, what does it mean that our 
kind of sense of global innovation has realigned around all of this uh, building up technologies made out of these, I don't know, rare minerals and child labor versus like thinking about producing food and like the needs of, I don't know, the mass population. Well, look, I could tell you what it means, like on a material impact out here near me, right? Like there's an area called Hawthorne uh, out here, right? Hawthorne and uh, really the border of Inglewood. And that's where SpaceX is located. Right. I didn't know what SpaceX was for the longest. I would just see it off the side <laughs> of a freeway called the 105 freeway. Um, the 105 freeway was made famous by the movie Speed with Keanu Reeves. It had just been built when that movie uh, Speed was was filmed, right? Like those those images of the bus on that freeway, like having to stay at 55 miles an hour or else it would blow up. The 105 freeway had just like, it was about to be complete. It wasn't even complete yet. So they were able to like basically inaugurate that freeway right that freeway cuts across all these black and brown communities right and then that's the freeway that is aligned along where spacex was developed next to an airport uh, a very small municipal airport in hawthorne so i didn't realize what that was until my homegirl started working for tesla <laughs> and she was like yo spacex is real close to you i was like oh what is that and then they told me right so what's happened in the area surrounding, right, is that these tech bros who moved out to, to work here, they've bought up all the houses in the area. This is prior to the development of um, the emergence of this new stadium that we have for the NFL, which is uh, an enormous kind of endeavor by Sam Kroenke, uh, who made his money out here on real estate speculation and all kinds of things, and then moved the L.A. Rams to St. Louis and then brought them back to L.A. and now has just done just this whole area is un it's it's just the it's incredible right it's fantastic on a basic level um so before all of that spacex had done this right and so housing already here is really limited um and it's super expensive so these dudes you know they don't have no problem like buying you know a house that is cheap to them but could be a single family home for anyone that who can afford it for you know $750,000 they'll buy it between three people and just kind of room there and live on the weekends, wherever they need to go. Um, that's, that's exacerbated our situation out here. Right. And so um, the material consequences of that are being seen right now in the COVID pandemic. So you have less housing, less opportunities for people, you know, as, as people in LA become more and more, you know, quote unquote, formally educated, right. That we have more people in the state of California, more Latinos, for example, being accepted into the UC system uh, where I think this generation of millennials are the most educated, right. Of any other, uh, any other generation, but they can't afford homes. They can't afford to, they can't afford to buy homes. They can't barely afford to rent homes. Um, so they live in their families, right? And then they disproportionately make up the essential workforce and all these other things, right? And so what we see now, there's investment in kind of keeping these areas that serve, right? Like these tech bros or people that are moving in um, into these communities, right? Revamping places like Inglewood. And at the same time, the hospitals that serve our communities have been also revamped and remodeled, but not to the capacity that's necessary for what are, what are the needs in our communities, right? So simultaneously, right, and I hope this makes sense, right? I feel like, Khadija, like I've listened to you and I see you talk and even your messages, I'm like, yo, Khadija, you're mad, like smart. And I feel like I finally found like a, like a mirror for someone like me that thinks all over the place, but it makes sense, right? Like it just comes together, right? And so these things seem disparate to a lot of folks, right? And I think that they, they seem like they don't make any sense. But what about that investment? What are what are, what is SpaceX or what is Tesla or what are any of these companies doing to help expand the capacity of, of things that are essential services for the community that serve these communities out here, like hospitals in the middle of a pandemic, right? Like how can we hold these places accountable? Um, to redistribute resources and, and, and wealth where they're like desperately needed because what's happening right now is kind of, gen is not kind of, right? It's an approximation of genocide because black and brown people are dying at disproportionate rates, are being infected at disproportionate rates in my communities, right? And when I, when I say my communities, right, I'm not saying abstractly, right? I'm talking about the communities that I live in right now that I organize in, that I walk the streets at, that, I, that we demand justice in, right? Um, these things are all interrelated, right? And so that's one thing, right? Like the kind of like landscape, geographic, um, real estate kind of impact of these things, right? These dudes don't have a problem, even if they're gonna like, I know there's high transition rates and tech jobs, right? They don't have a problem like 
just renting that house out. Now they have property out here. They bought it for $750,000. They'll rent it out to the next bro, right? Um, or the next set of fools that works there. And they'll move, you know, to fucking Austin, Texas, right? Or, or Savannah, mm-hmm. Georgia, or, you know, New York, or wherever the hell, it, you know, wherever they need to go. But they've already, the legacies of them being in our communities continue to persist because those houses continue to be inaccessible and unaffordable and they continue to generate wealth outside of our communities, right? Like for other people. So it continues this kind of string of exploitation. On the other hand is how do you kind of figure like um, how to use um, and organize and strategize um, to expand the possibilities of what a movement for justice for people against police terror um, would look like right in the digital age, right? Like I organized mm-hmm. with folks that are, you know, like that organized on the East coast and then came out here and, you know, have been organizing for 20, 30 years. And it's like, <laughs> they be on Facebook and that's it. Right. And that's no knock. I never been on Facebook. Right. So I don't really even know how it works. Like on a fundamental level. Um, I mean, I get an idea. Right. But like, you know, it's like that's where they make their connections and all these things. And that's dope. Right. Like today, for example, they were live streaming an a, a inquest from the medical examiner's office on the murder of, uh, of Fred Williams by Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. Right. But like they're doing like a Facebook live and trying to like have a live chat, but like the resonance isn't there. Right. And I don't see, I don't know any of that stuff. Like how do you make, like, how do you build resonance and how do you do this without becoming a brand? Right. And selling like merch. I mean, I don't, I, I don't really know how to do that. So w- meeting you, I feel like is, is this kind of moment of exchange and opportunity and breath into each other's movements and lives. Right. Because I feel like, you have a lot to teach me. And that's another thing that I wanted to share with you, right? Like I run around in these spaces um, where there's a lot of high achieving, brilliant folks and I deeply respect them for what they do. And also I know I'm just different, right? And when I met you, right? And I've seen you, I'm like, oh shit, there's more of us out there, right? And we're trying to navigate these waters in particular ways. and, And we're thinking, we're constantly thinking about things and not letting those thoughts immobilize us, right? But like, we, we continue to move as best we can. And so I'm actually interested in that like question as to how to mobilize better on, you know, through, um, tech and social media to expand the capacity of what these movements could do because they are hyper-localized, right? They're very rooted in, um, in, in particular kind of like spaces, especially out here, right? Like there's another divide that happens out here, which we don't have to get into, but the, the freeways really cut across a lot of things, right? So a lot of the major organizing that's happened out here in LA that's been visible throughout the nation is very Hollywood, right? And Hollywood is on the other side of the 10 freeway, Right we're on the south side of the 10 freeway and this is a whole other world and to be honest a lot of people are scared to come out here right and so there's all these dynamics that happen right and so when people that are sharing stuff on social media are from the hoods that are uh, that that someone was killed from right like these are people that are criminalized and already surveilled by the police for their social media activity right so them being involved in movements or being expressive or being human online, right? Talking about like the cops need to be brought to justice by any means necessary. That shit could literally put them in danger, right? So then how does one make the movement resonant thinking about the surveillance state, the stalker state that the folks from Stop LAPD Coalition, Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, which you were on the call with, with Hamid Khan, right? Um, how does one do that, <laughs> right? Like uh, how does one make people feel like they're a part of something and not continue to be more in the snares of surveillance and stalking and, you know, all these other things that the state has the capacity to do with private tech firms and things like that. I don't know. That's a bunch of, that's a bunch of things, but um, these are the, again, those are the things that you made me think about right now in relationship to all of these things, right? Like the tech stuff, the, the land, the power, the wealth, the advancement of inequity, the genocidal violence because of the pandemic. And then how do we attend to these things uh, strategizing on some of the things that make our situation even worse? Well, I was just thinking SpaceX is like such a perfect example of this just from the, Like, there's plenty of tech companies that are fundamentally divorced from their community. But, like, the whole point of SpaceX, like, is to get off the planet in the first place. And then, like, who do they serve mostly is, like, largely elements of the military-industrial complex. And it just, it kind of captures this this exact problem, like, better than almost any other company that comes to mind. See, I didn't even know who they served. Um, 
and then the landscape has changed so much. Like again, I've I've been here longer than SpaceX, right? Obviously, um, and they've developed part like so spacex across the street from a little shopping center that has a lowe's a target a ross uh like a pet smart or whatever it's one of those like strip malls that you would see in anywhere usa right and so that's the target that i go to um and that's the you know whenever i have to go get stuff that's where we go that's where i take my mom to ross on tuesdays for the senior discount right um that's also all new because for a long time these areas have been abandoned in terms of like retail basic retail and i know there's problematics and all of that but we don't have shit right i grew up without having shit i tell people all the time like i used to think in and out you know if y'all know what in and out the burger joint right like that's a very california thing when i grew up i had never seen an in and out in my life Right. I used to see the the jingles and the and the commercials as a kid. I was like, is that shit even real? Right. Like, Because I'd never seen anything like that. Your mom's I had to take G. a bus to go get your mom's yeah, to take a subway. <laughs> no, nah, we was poor. You know, we were poor and we didn't have access to transportation like that. Right. So it, it, um, also like subway. I mean, I, I wouldn't eat subway now because that shit's gross to me now. <laughs> but I thought that shit was fancy back in the day. Right. Like and when I say back in the day, I'm talking about like 1996, 1997. <laughs> I had never seen a subway before in my life. And so I had to take a bus like two hours or like an hour to go get a Subway sandwich. And I th- it made the experience like, oh, shit, this is like some shit that the other side be living in. Right. And I'm like, holy shit. Flash forward to now, all that shit dots all our landscape. Right. But what doesn't dot our landscape is affordable housing, more clinics, dentist office, school, uh, you know, credit unions. Right. Anything that could actually serve our communities, you know, like healthy, you know, restaurants. Like I joke with people like if I want to go out and eat out here, like, you know, I could get a bad fried chicken. That shit is bomb, too. Right. Like, you know, if y'all ever come out here, you know, I'll take you out of Jim Danny's. Um, although somebody just got shot there like a week and a half ago. You know what I'm saying? Like it's those things. Right. But I can't go get like and, you know, I like Panera. You know what I'm saying? Like I want to fuck with me some soup and salad. I can't go get that if I want that. Right. And so. These are quintessential existences that I look at something like SpaceX. And as you're telling me this, Ilana, right? Like, I'm like, oh, of course they serve these fools. And so the parking lots, sorry, my point about the shopping center also was that these fools have usurped the parking lot. They have their own parking building, but they also (laughs) have designated spaces in the strip mall. Like all through the, and it's a big ass strip mall, right? Like they take up most of that parking too. So you see all these fucking Teslas in the hood. Right. Like and I'm just like, damn, ah! you know, like it just it, it, it pisses me off when I think about it. Right. And it's like, damn, how do you deal with a behemoth like this? Tesla's in the right? hood and is so- the title of a poem that someone should write. That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, also- oh, man. And then they, t- they come to the park. Sorry. They come to the park, play basketball. These dudes with no shirt in a park that are like long standing like sites for like some OG crip neighborhoods, you know. And I'm just like, there's no way y'all should be here. Like, you are making it really dangerous for a lot of people here in ways that the Crip neighborhoods that are here, the Crip, crip you know, gangs that are out here never did. You know? And so, oh, there's just so many things. <laughs> well, there's no curiosity and there's no respect. I mean, maybe it comes that that, that part first, right? There's no respect and therefore no mm-hmm. curiosity. Um, because when you're mm-hmm. thinking about innovation, it's all connected to consumerism, right? Like, I know Bezos wants to have mm-hmm. uh, everybody go into space so that, you know, because... There's there's only so much space on the earth that you could keep data centers, that you could have distribution centers uh, to distribute goods. And so if we want to really make our consumerism infinite, we need to start like thinking about other planets because where are we going to store the shit so we could just keep buying shit? Yep. <laughs> um, yep. Yep. <laughs> and so so many things came to mind when you was talking. And one of them is that like I love I know we were talking about before the show with Black Sign Radio and how I did the zine for the um what is it Andre for the for for the um the remix featuring Andre Brack from Distributed Blackness. Yeah. And I wrote uh please steal this idea. And so yes. um so the thing that I like is that podcasts don't have to be in competition with each other. And so when I was preparing for this, I listened to that Hood Digest episode. Um, shout out yeah. to Hood Digest. I feel like they need to resurrect whatever they're doing. I'm sure something important, but I really enjoyed the whole flow of that conversation. And then I started listening to the other episodes and I just really fuck with that hard body. I really learned a lot from it. And, um, you know, there's just, so I, I say that to say like, while you were talking, I'm very like disparate in my thoughts, but I think of it almost like a topographical map. Like academia is so strange mm-hmm. in the way that it compartmentalizes, um, knowledge and just, we, we did one episode 
last season about agroecology. And when they were explaining to me that in the universities, like in Iowa and stuff, the people would be in the seed department and there'd be a soil department and those two people don't overlap. And that's like, wow, right? Mm. Like for somebody who's actually yeah. planting some shit, you never be like, well, do you specialize yeah. in leaves or soil? And then you talk about soil and they're like, why? Like that makes no sense. What's so motherfucking ever? Yeah. And I think that there's a yeah. lot of people like us. And I think that has like mm-hmm. mixed mixed reviews. Like, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Like on one level, you know, I think that, you know, I learned, so I feel like half of what I know is from the other baby mothers in the welfare office, like the other people yep. going through the grind and the struggle. Um, my grandmother, who actually is not my grandmother, I don't know, it's like some third arm once removed or some shit like that. She never went mm-hmm. past fifth grade, but she taught me so much and we didn't even speak the same language. Um, but I learned so much from her. And so, like, I feel very much a product of my environment in that way. Um, But there's this need to kind of connect all the dots because everything has been um, invisibilized to us. And I think the hard thing, thinking about the relationship between the struggle between police violence and the tech stuff and the research, it's not so much about the actual technology. Like, when you were talking about how do you disseminate the ideas, like, it, it doesn't have the same resonance. You know, in a way, I think that we're more, and this is Andre Brock's point, is that everybody looks at it from uh, like the black deficit perspective or the digital divide. And they're always worried about, do poor people have enough computers or enough access to technology? Mm-hmm. And we're the real innovators of like techno culture. You know, like somebody might have digital redlining and I have access to good Wi-Fi, but they're out here making like 4K complex produced videos on TikTok and having like 50,000 views, right? Mm-hmm. But the real thing with technology is kind of not necessarily beginning from the phone or beginning from the function of Facebook Live, but questioning, like, how did we even get here? Because the crazy thing about Facebook is that they're creating profiles even if you didn't sign up no more. And this was, like, years ago that they was having shadow profiles. Like, how do we even disengage? And I think that's the scary thing about trying to be ethical in this moment. Because I just have a confession is that, like, I have never taken, have I ever taken money from a tech company? The only time I ever was indirectly was from um, the AI ethics conference that we did, where I think the people who paid me got some money from Facebook, but I've never worked for a tech company or anything like that. And I wouldn't necessarily be, like, if you were just asking me, like, I wouldn't be motivated to sell out. But I'll say, like, around the situation in Ethiopia, and I was working on a story then, I was posting on Twitter because we were, while in the middle of me working on that story, it evolved into war. And I was seeing the role that, like, social media played in amplifying mis- and disinformation. And also, like, so much of the tech research is U.S.-centric or maybe a little bit of the EU, but nobody really knows about, like, locally, how do you locally situate missing disinformation or the fact that Ethiopia and I think like five other countries in Africa are Huawei safe cities, which is this Chinese company that sets up the government with like facial recognition cameras. Like they just create all this infrastructure to create digital surveillance, even when like in countries like Ethiopia, they're still rolling blackouts and also the, the, the government for various authoritarian reasons will do information blackouts, but this infrastructure is still able to persist. And I'm writing about this on Twitter and a big tech company approached me and I really like, I lost sleep over this for weeks. You know, ultimately I think that, you know, I'm incapable of holding my tongue and I think that my commentary um, put them in a situation where they didn't really want to move forward anyway. But I found myself in a situation where I was like, I consulted all the people that I really trust and I'm like, I don't know what to do because I could refuse to do this on principle but I'm in a situation where like I asked them, if I don't do this, do you have somebody else who really understands the political and cultural context as well as the tech part? And they were like, nah. In fact, the like department of this company that reached out to me was risk mitigation. And so their concern was really coming from a liability perspective because they were like, look what happened with Myanmar. You know, they had basically uh, facilitated genocide (laughs) and had to like, uh, participate in the war crime tribunals against the military who had created, you know, thousands of, uh, Facebook pages as informational beauty pages looking kind of things, but using Mm -hmm. it to promote, um, genocidal statements and actions against the Rohingya people. And so I was in a situation where it's like, I could refuse to work with them right on principle. Cause I don't want to mess with their bread. But one is that I had some idea of what to do to move forward. And like, who else in that situation am I going to go to? Am I going to go to the NGOs, which are backed by like foreign nation states and including part of their national intelligence? 
armed militias or the government, which is actively, um, you know, murdering its own people and invited, in fact, Eritrean army, a foreign government, in to also exterminate a whole bunch of people in the Tigray region. And so, you know, these moral questions become really complicated. And my concern when I'm thinking about, like, the path forward is that in the American context, honestly, I don't feel like, like, I feel like that would be a false um, dichotomy. I don't think that it is like, oh, I'm going to go work at Columbia and if I lose this job, I must work at Facebook or I must work at Google or Twitter or whatever. Like we have other options and we could argue like, are those options even clean? Right. You know, if I say no to Google money, but I'm at Stanford and they didn't divest from the prison industrial complex, like, is that better? I don't know. There you go. Um, but like my concern is that we, things are moving so rapidly and the way the information is getting out is so compartmentalized that many more of us will find ourselves in that situation rolling with Facebook or Google or Twitter because they have like um, gutted all of our institutions of governance. Um, and, you know, like even this with Zoom, I think my concern with, you know, the academy, whatever shortcomings and also social justice movements is like the lack of pause or critical thinking to be like, what does it mean for us to translate all the other stuff that we, we used to be doing onto this proprietary platform? And not just the privacy considerations, which are important too, but like, how does this reorganize the ways in which we relate to each other? And like the other question I was going to ask to you about the tech stuff is not just what you're seeing visibly in the community, but as far as like the actual infrastructure and the buildings, but like, how do you feel like it's reorganized labor? Like you see a lot of the people in your community being, you know, Uber drivers or working in the Amazon warehouses or, you know, a part of this gig economy, which is like also the innovation (laughs) is basically like servants, (laughs) but with like less stability. Um, I don't know. So that's like a lot of different things all over the place. Well, the the first thing, because just to jump off like the beginning where you said like steal this, right? And then the kind of contradictions that arise in working anywhere in the United States. I mean, we're in the belly of empire, right? So like, I really like that you say that and are up front in terms of like, no, that, what money is clean in this country, right? Like not, none of it is, right? Like, I mean, not, not, nothing is clean out here, right? And so, but the ethical dilemmas persist, right? Or like how to do these things. For the longest, I was trying to not be... I mean, I still struggle with this, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to say, I mean, let me pick how I'm going to say this. Like, um, we say, we have a saying, like, hablo sin pelos en la lengua, which means uh, we don't speak with hairs on our tongue, so things don't get caught in them. So mm. kind of similar to you, right? Like, uh, I don't I don't grow anything on my tongue except words, and so they come out. So sometimes I have to pause and think uh, before I... <laughs> say some shit that's gonna give me <laughs> give me some unnecessary drama you know i just read this that's book the called story Radical of my life that is the story yeah. of my life so, no we are on this podcast to burn un- bridges alejandro just say it it's fine just let it out. <laughs> so they can like my so they can like my way no but it, it's this part right it's that for the longest i was like I don't really need to be at the center, like, in talking about things because I do have this vexed relationship with the reality that I am a fucking academic now, right? And I'm, I'm like, firmly in the middle class. I'm a homeowner in my community, right? Like, which is so different from so many other people. And I'm still very much tethered to my community through my family, right? My family is not these things, right? Like, I am probably, you know, my home is probably... I mean, yeah, it, we make the most money in my family. And so when COVID almost killed my family, I've had to pay multiple rents and do all these different things, right? So there's that part, right? That, that lived reality and that felt reality. But then I see who gets platforms and who doesn't have a problem being the center of the world or the attention, right? And I'm like, I know you ain't about shit. Like, I, I know that, you know, you... There's no hesitance in the deals that, that that you're making, right? And this is this is writ large, right? I'm sure we all know different people in different locations, right? Like if 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 that that makes people uncomfortable, right? Like then it's probably about you, right? Um, and so the more I started paying attention, right, like firmly, because I would just ignore people, right? Like certain things, like, oh, they full of shit anyway. I'm not fuck with that. But the more I started paying attention, I was like, what the fuck? I should be talking. I should be doing these things. Like I know where I'm coming from. I know who I stand with and not just me, like as a definition, like not me judging myself. I was like the community that I stand with knows what I'm about. 
So I've been taking up more space, right? And so that's opened up different opportunities. And what's interesting about like, you know, platform building and all that, like you keep mentioning my Twitter and you know, like I try to stay anonymous on there as much as possible, right? And so again, like I'm not trying to share that now, but I've built like a very organic, I think like platform over the years. I'm not like a big time person or anything, but like, you know, I, I got, I get good engagement from folks and I, somebody told me you should check your analytics. I don't know what any of that shit means. Maybe off, off <laughs> camera, you could tell me what, a, what, a, what an impression means. Um, but you know, like, um, you know, like I, I've, I've been able to build really like dope relationships through these, through Twitter really. Um, and I have new opportunities. And so one of the things, like you said, and this is not like to the extreme of like talking about genocide, right? Like, cause I mean, that's is amazing what you're sharing with me or us. Um, but I, I was invited to be part of this, um, really creative, um, like entertainment, like screenwriters room, right? It was called Break the Room by this, uh, put together by Samir. Uh, oh shit, I'm forgetting his last name. Starts with a G. Uh, I just can't, I don't want to mess it up. It's Samir Gadizi, I think. Um, and I got introduced by a sister named uh, Marjorie, Marjorie Hill, uh, who runs Muslim Anti-Racist Coalition, right? She's a black hijabi woman, black American hijabi. And um, she, um, she'd been a long time mutual of mine. And, 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 you know, I say friend, you know, like comrade and, you know, we learned about each other. I think people became drawn to what I do because I do a lot of stuff around Central American migration, race, power, uh, blackness and indigeneity. Right. And really a lot of anti-carceral stuff. And so, you know, I just kind of am prolific on there in a lot of ways, uh, when it comes to that stuff and, and really the hood. And so, um, she invited me part of this. I'd never done anything. She didn't give me no details. I just joined and there was this um, this writer's room of nothing but folks of color um, and, you know, uh, from different walks of life to create this show, right? Um, and the show was a profile of Los Angeles. And it's actually on Instagram TV. It's called, uh, uh, it's called East of La Brea. Um, and it features three characters um, and they're friends and they're like 20 somethings, right? Like they're all college graduate. One is a South Asian. I think she's, um, Bangladeshi, Muslim American, but like, you know, not really devout or anything. The other one is black American and, and half Somali from South Central. And then the other dude is a Salvadoran, uh, American kid born, uh, to a Salvadoran immigrant that fled from the war and opened a, a coffee shop. So it deals with gentrification. It deals with, you know, anti-Blackness, tradition, all these different things in a very humane way. Um, and it decenters the traditional places of what L.A. is thought of. Right. So it centers these places that are really big diasporic contact zones like um, West Adams. Uh, this may not mean, you, you know, where Nipsey Hussle's spot was at, like that's South Central, right? Like this is a site of like mad African diaspora, Central American diaspora, Caribbean diaspora meeting and kind of, you know, living amongst one another. And so I was able to craft and shape a lot of the story of the Central American character. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to a lot of people, right? But it is a big deal because most people, uh, most Latinx characters tend to be either Mexican or Puerto Rican or maybe Cuban, right, on TV. Central Americans, while they make up collectively three, the third largest Latinx population in the United States, rarely get any like multi-dimensional representation. So that was an opportunity that arose through this, right? And I was like, well, I'm a, I am I trusted who invited me to the project because I had built a relationship. I knew that it wasn't about to be like for the white gays, right? It was for us, by us kind of thing, right? But then they had to go and get funding. But, and so I started meeting the funders and the people that were going to publish or whatever, or produce this thing and you know they were all white <laughs> and so uh you know they were like the kind that were like oh you know this is really cool that character really developed uh we'd like to pick your brain but you know they don't want to pick your brain as much when they know you have a phd well, so right. pick your brain is the know... most violent uh... <laughs> i know <laughs> right. right like because i think they knew that i would know that i'm gonna ask for money if you're gonna pick my brain right it's not like I, I come off as this hood person, you know, that's maybe sharp or whatever, but you can't tell where I got sharp from. And then I drop the bomb that, oh, I'm a professor and a PhD. And it's like, oh, shit. So then I don't become as like, uh, I don't know, uh, objectified to some degree, maybe to some degree, but I feel the shift. Right. And so um, but the thing is, that experience actually lended myself or lent itself to what you're talking about. Right. Like more of that question of like, why not me? Who else? Right. And not in this like self-centered, egotistical way. Right. Because I've been this person for 20, 20 something years as I was preparing and thinking and reflecting on what we were going to talk about. I was like, 
well, who the fuck am I? Right? Like, I always ask myself that. I'm like, I am who the fuck I am. <laughs> right? Like, I've been who the fuck I am. And, I am, and I'm going to be who the fuck I'm going to be. Right? Like, it's just that. And so it's, uh, thankfully, you know, I've been able to keep that, that essence of who I am. And so in that essence, I have a deep sense of ethics and, and, and a desire to help. Um, and, and I'll close with this little story, right? Like my mom saw me on the news. I was recently interviewed at one of our actions for uh, Spanish language media, which is another major part of, of what I'm doing in the movement on the streets is that whenever there's Spanish language media reporting on these things, because it's notoriously racist and bad, right? Um, I make sure that I'm the person that they're interviewed because I speak Spanish, right? And so I did a couple interviews um, in the last week and a half and they opened up local Spanish language media and my mom and my dad saw it. And one of the things my, my mom said is like, you know, I came from Guatemala and I saw people organized in the in the Revolutionary War and all of that stuff, right? And some of them were our family members and they were non-Indian folks, non-Indigenous people, right? And so um, they're like, you know, I saw a lot of these people come through the house and all of these things. And, you know, ultimately they were all right after the genocide. Those poor people that they organized, right? Those indigenous people, right? They got targeted and they got killed and they they were disappeared and all of these things. And yeah, they came for, you know, one of our family members and, you know, but he was able to escape because he had connections in another country. These indigenous people ain't got nowhere to go. And she's like, you know, so I always think of movement work. This is my mom talking. She was like, everybody's full of shit in my experience. And I know because I've seen it in Guatemala and I've seen it here in the United States. And she's like, but you, and this was like, you know, I mean, you know, as kids of immigrants, you know, how hard get these <laughs> affirmations are from our parents. But she was like, with you, it feels like the contrary. I've seen you all your life be like this. And on the contrary, it usually costs you money. <laughs> You're not getting anything <laughs> from it. And I was like, because I had just told her how I just had delivered. Like I had just went and bought like five or six pizzas for the comrades down on down down in downtown doing an action I couldn't stay at. And I was like, I'm gonna just roll by and give y'all some food and you know take some you know take some napkins and some paper towels for y'all as y'all post up. You know, because uh, they were they were anticipating there might be some fascists out there, and so they had to be confronted, right? So I had just told my mom that, and she was like, on the contrary, it costs you pizza money. She's like, and I've always seen you do that. And so because of that recognition, right, because of that affirmation, like you're saying, right, like what you said, Khadija, about like you've gotten stuff from like you've learned as much from baby mamas and people navigating the system than you have from other stuff, right? Like from other more like traditional sources of, of, of learning what we think about in the Western sense, right? That kind of thing, right, that recognition to me was like a, an affirmation that now that I'm taking up more space, right, like it's I'm doing it the right way because my parents ain't talking shit about me, you know, and like people are hearing me and other people are saying like, damn, I saw you on the news and, you know, I, I had my mom listen to it and she felt like she could understand because she saw your face and she knew she could tell where you were from. So, you know, like all that to say is like that shit really matters to me. I try to be as authentic as possible and I try to always entertain, you know, these questions of ethics and what I'm going to do. And so if I ever take, you know, money that is like extremely vexed, which I don't know if I would, right? But if I did, it would come back here, right? Like not for me, it wouldn't go sit and, you know, thankfully I have a good job where I don't need to hoard money, right? So it would be redistributed to these transnational mutual aid things that, you know, social media has allowed us to do, right? Like to help our people when um, the floods destroy entire indigenous and Afro-indigenous communities, right? Um, we 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 fund these things, you know. Like uh, one of the homies, for example, owns a coffee shop, very small local coffee shop, and he um, did a raffle where he was able to raise almost three thousand dollars. He matched up to a thousand. This is a very small business in the middle of a pandemic in Compton that gets no love from the local, you know, neoliberal representative, uh, you know, political body out there, right? But he he survives because of the community built uh, bonds that he's made and the way he's moved in in that space. And so he he raised I think thirty six hundred dollars and was able to give twelve hundred dollars to three different regions, two indigenous and one Afro indigenous region, directly to the people, not through no nonprofit or non governmental organization. Like this is enormous work, you know. And those are the kind of people that keep me in check and make me feel like, damn, I got to get more popping so I can get them more popping, you know. So I don't know if that makes sense, but I hope it does. Nah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one of my kids just came through the door, so I know it's about to get turned up, turned up. But I wanted to ask one last question to you. Um, and then we have a little ritual at the end of the show where we ask you to recommend anything to our listeners. It could be something you're watching, listening to, on topic or off. Um, but my last question is just, 
Like, I feel like we spend a lot of time thinking about, like, authenticity and, like, what does it, you know, how do we self-evaluate and, like, also just, like, the relational kind of assessment. But something I think about a lot, too, is the strategy, which, you know, maybe is related, but I just also, like, my whole thing with the movement is that, like, I literally think about movement as, like, moving, like, getting somewhere. And sometimes I feel a level of frustration that we are, you know, there's an importance of ritual. But if we getting into the streets and our and our goal is to actually like displace these institutions that are terrorizing and decimating our communities, like I actually want to succeed in that goal, um, even if it's not overnight. And I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I think that's part of the question about expertise to the, the degree that's even a, a, a helpful term. Um, but like maybe we could resituate it and thinking about like elders in our community and stuff like that. But like. I don't know. I guess like to all, all of that to say, like, what are your thoughts on strategy as it relates to kind of what you've been studying and thinking about and the relationship to the movement? So we're not just, you know, in repetition. Yeah. So one of the things, right, or more specific and hyper localized is the work that I've been doing uh, when I'm out in the community is speaking Spanish. Now, that may sound silly to some folks, right? But it is to kind of uh, attend to build that bridge and fill in that gap of, of the kinds of, you know, to your point of misinformation or disinformation, right? Like, I think that me being interviewed and kind of taking up space in Spanish, using kind of the, my expertise in abolition, right? Like my expertise in anti-carceral politics, my expertise in anti-authoritarian, like dreaming, right? Um, is really uh, a powerful location to kind of build, right? Because I want to invite elders into this, right? So one of our actions in the summer was in Compton, right? Uh, after they shot and killed the uh, um, Andres Guardado, which is an 18 year old Salvadoran kid. Right. And, um, I was able to, you know, I, I had, I've been out on the streets supporting his family for a long time. His father is, uh, you know, I, I deeply care about his father and his mom and his sister and his uncle and, you know, his cousins who uh, just kept his name alive and just keep fighting. Right. Like these people fled a civil war in El Salvador. Right. And they came over here and lost their kid to, to state terror, right. And state violence. Like, you know, they executed him. Right. There's talks that the cop that shot him was chasing ink, trying to join a deputy clique in Compton um, and that he put him on his knees and shot him in the back. Right. Um, and so that shit broke me in general. Right. And so it just moved me, you know, to be part of this. Right. And it happened down the street from our community and uh, from where I live and, and, and where my nephews live. Right. So. It could have been me. It could have been my nephews, you know, and I'm not saying that shit abstractly. Right. Like, I mean, it literally can. Right. Like these are my my kind of people. He looked like he could have been my nephew and my family. But one of the things that broke me was um, his aunt said that his family fled the war. Right. And one of the write ups um, and one of the early marches. And then another thing that broke me was that his mom, his mom or his dad were interviewed in, in some some space where they said that he had just bought a new car. And that he had just gotten that job where he was working at a security, like part time as a second job to pay the car that he bought. And so while that may not seem like a big like, you know, it wasn't a big part of the story. Right. Like it's something that I'm sure a lot of people forgot. But because there's a familiarity, right, like a cultural familiarity. Right. Well, I didn't know his family at that time, but. I was like, I know how proud his family was when he bought that car. I know the text of the car, of the pictures of the car they probably sent to the rest of the family. Mira, tal y tal el Andresito compró, you know, compró ese carrito, you know, y agarró todo su trabajito, blah, 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 blah. You know, what I just said was like, you know, look, little Andres bought this car. You know, he got another job. He's working really hard. He, you know, he's succeeding, et cetera, et cetera. He graduated high school. You know, all these things that are major things out here in the hood. And so when I heard those stories, like they really captivated me. And so one of our actions, I spoke one, so they put me on blast and I don't usually like to speak at these actions. Right. But that's the story that I told. And you could tell people were just completely moved from that. Right. Because to your point, it wasn't like me, the quote unquote, like career activist. It was a community member and the academic who writes these stories, who thinks these stories, who sits with these stories, who can pluck out this kind of seemingly trivial conversation or comment and the people that hear that are going to hear a different relationship to this like this person in this story and this family who we're mm -hmm. fighting for right and i'm doing it in spanish too so it's inviting the elders to kind of understand and recognize what's happening right and so then at another action same spot another elder comes up to me you know he's probably like 60s from mexico he has a camera and i'm looking at him kind of suspect right i'm like who is this trying to film me 
But then he kind of tells me, hey, you know, I have my own like video blog, you know, like, you know, I'm trying to get it off the, you know, whatever off the ground. But he told me he was like, it's so good to see every all the young people out because I've been waiting for y'all for 30 years since I came to this country. He's like, I've been anti-police all my life since I was in Mexico. He's like, I've been waiting for y'all. And so he interviewed me in Spanish and he, he explained to me, he's like, this this kind of information, the stuff that you know needs to be in our communities in Spanish so they can have a challenge to the shit that the news tells them, which justifies the killings and criminalizes black people and young brown people who get killed by the police. And so on a local level, right, like that's the move. That's part of where I see myself filling in the gap. Right. And then just kind of embodying that, like, I'm here and I'm a here, like, you know, to whatever my capacity is. I come out and practice the cultural things that are really important for me. Like, um, I know we've talked about food and things before. I think at the at the abolition open school, we talked about that. Um, I remember one action. I had gone to Costco, right, buying whatever food and I bought the big case of Ferrero Rocher chocolates. You know, those golden wrap ones that us immigrants <laughs> <Yes>. love. <laughs> And it was a 48 or like 96 pack, whatever. It was on sale. I bought like three of them. I gave one to the aunt that helped raise my kid in the beginning, you know, caretake. Um, And then I gave one to my mom because she loves it. And then I took one to an action for Fred Williams, actually, in in Willowbrook, which is Mona Park, a really small black and brown community. And I was like, I'm going to take these and I'm going to hand them out. And when I tell you, like, the, the hood people that was there, like, from the neighborhood, like the dudes didn't want to grab them, but their girls, I love these, you know, da, 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 da. And they were like, you better get one or I'm going to take that shit for. But, you know, it's those little things that you learn, right? Like that to me, make me an expert in how to be in our communities because I'm from our communities is to give and come and be like, look, these are sacred gifts. This is a gold wrap piece of chocolate in my culture, right? Like in our indigenous cultures, you know, cacao and all these seeds were really sacred. Now we may not have the same, you know, the same kind of like access and relationship to them now, but I'm trying to reconnect to those things and I'm offering them to you. And those things then build that community that keep those folks welcoming us back to their hood, you know, and like know that we really about some shit, that we're not here to like dip in and like build a platform off of their, their suffering. You know what I mean? So anyway, I share those stories, you know, uh, hoping they resonate with that, with that question as well. I really appreciated hearing them. I think that there's this process where a lot of activism has been subsumed by certain like segments of academia in ways that are mm-hmm. like dangerous and bad and unhelpful. And it's really nice mm-hmm. to hear an academic who understands that <laughs> it's rooted in the community, right? Or like rooted in labor or rooted in like what people truly believe rather than activism as a kind of exercise in self-promotion or, you know, a, a, a route to a publication or whatever that might be. Um, right. I, I do want to be mindful yeah. of time. So I no, I really appreciated right. yeah. those stories. Yeah. Those were, uh, especially as, as someone who like my, my work is largely, you know, rooted in tech. So, so we do have this closing ritual. So, so, uh, is there something that you've been reading recently, watching it, you know, listening to, uh, again, on topic or off that that you want to share with the audience? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been really into this artist that I just heard. Like, so I'm not going to lie. You know, I love the show. This is us. I know it's terrible, you know, but I'm able to, <laughs> like, there's some things that are terrible. And there's some things that I hate that just, show. I hate so that show. So I'm so much. Okay. <laughs> well, see, I, uh, my, I, this reframes see, the entire conversation we just had over the last <laughs> hour. All right. I'm going to just dip this early. Is this, this, this is not about the show. This is not about the show. See, this legitimizes everything. I know. Feel good porn. I know. It's god awful. Listen, listen, listen. This is what you were saying. The hair is growing on your tongue, right? You're like, oh no, I said the wrong thing. I was gonna say that. No, see, look at now the, the bridges are burning and they're lighting up my future. Nah, um, it's the death of the dad thing for me because my nephew died and left his kids around the same age. So that's the story that really like, in, like 
script me. You know, I know the other, you know, I'm smart enough to know all the other bullshit about it, right? But the point is, they they played this song by this artist. Her name is Joy Oladokun, and I, I'm probably butchering her name. Uh, but I've been really into her music. It's really powerful and beautiful. And I, apparently she grew up in, like, in Nashville in a predominantly white uh, community. And so um, a lot of her music is really resonant and kind of reflective and introspective about her upbringing. She calls herself the Trap Tracy Chapman. Um, and uh, that's pretty appropriate. And so a lot of her music is, uh, I mean, it's really deep. You know, she has a song called I See America, uh, Breathe Again, The Mighty Die Young. Um, she's pretty dope. Her last name is O-L-A-D-O-K-U-N. So uh, folks should peep her out. I mean, I don't know her or anything, you know, I'm just, I'm just shouting her out. And, you know, I hope she blows up because I, I really like her voice and, and, and how she sings with power and all right, that's like that's like a good recovery. I mean, now you put it in like <laughs> grieving loss. You switched to <laughs> now, he's like, definitely made that excuse before, right? Sorry, not excuse. I didn't mean it like that. But like you had to justify your preferences in the past. <laughs> nah, but well, that's why I said I know, I know. Y'all heard me. <laughs> you were ready with the, like I heard me, but I said I know, I know. Reason. Nah, but something happens as an abolitionist because I remember I seen this webinar. You know, I don't go, I don't go to a lot of webinars, but I went to this webinar with um, yeah. Ruth, um, Ruth Wilson and uh, Gilmore and Miriam yeah. Kaba, and Miriam Kaba was going on and on about the Gilmore girls, and I was like, "Girl, that is I, <laughs> I was like, "No, I've never seen that." No, and I love she asked she Gilmore something about it, and she was like, "No, I have not watched the Gilmore Girls," and I was like, "Yes." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on a high note, but see, y'all doing important work though, so you know, I gotta let it go. Uh, but this is the We Be Imagining show. Thank you so much for coming through. You know, I wish this was real life. Um, and I could give you some gold wrap yeah. chocolate and stuff. Maybe, maybe not the 96 pack. Uh, I, I, I let my Costco um, membership expire, but you know, some, something small. Uh, <laughs> I got it through the homie, though. <laughs> uh, but oh, what did I want to say? Is uh, Do you want to shout anything out? I know you like Secret on Twitter, but is there anything else that you want to shout out? Uh, you know, some work, uh, abolition, open school. Yeah, the Abolition Open School. I'm a co-organizer of the Abolition Open School, which is a conglomeration and connection network of both Cal State University system faculty and UC, uh, University of California faculty to try to build towards um, expanding and making more resonant um, the ideas around abolition, but really ultimately with the goal to get cops off campus, right? And to do everything that's incumbent with the abolition, right? Build alongside better ways to, to be in practice, right? And I think the ultimate dream is to kind of attend to the carceral practices that exist beyond the embodiment of the cop, right? And so to build a healthier, uh, more community engaged and community responsive um, campuses. Um, and so that's some of the work that I do. Also, people can't peep me out on um, on Instagram. I have a, I run a Instagram, which I'm very poor at, but like uh, it's sent am studies. And so it's a, it's a, a curation of of what I envision as Central American studies. So it's a lot of academic articles, but, you know, sometimes like podcasts and art and poetry from local Central American folks from di the diaspora throughout the nation. And so um, I, I, I think that stuff is fun, you know, and um, you see some of the videos of the work that, you know, the community work that we've done also. And um, but yeah, if you're interested in books, grad students really gravitate towards that because there's not really a lot of Central American studies scholars throughout the nation. So I get a lot of I get a lot of. Uh, support and engagement when it comes to young folks on there. So it's sent am studies on Instagram. So C E N T A M studies. Um, so those are two things that I'd plug. Um, and also, yeah, I organize with the coalition for community control of police uh, out here in LA. Um, dope. I'll put all of this in the show notes too. So even if people don't write it down as they listen in, it will be linked in the show notes. Um, but thank you so much. This is it. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. You can check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Columbia University website, Google Podcasts, all of that. Rate us, review us. Oh, and also become a Patreon member. If you have discretionary income, consider giving it to us so we can do more episodes like this. Thank you, y'all. <laughs>